Well, last week we started a new study in the book of Second Peter. So I'm going to encourage you to go ahead and open your Bible to the book of Second Peter. And we're going to continue the study certainly for this semester and most likely beyond into the fall semester. For about a century, Eric Little has been known as one of the most famous English-speaking Christian athletes. He was born in 1902 in North China to missionary parents. The original home was the UK, but he grew up primarily in China, and every so often they would have their furlough in Scotland in the city of Edinburgh. At 18, he enrolled at the University of Edinburgh to study science, And when he was a student at the University of Edinburgh, he played rugby and he ran track. He became one of the most famous rugby players. He went to the championship game seven times and won multiple of those championships. But he also excelled at track. He was a great runner. And when he had to make a decision between rugby or running, he chose running. And he qualified for the 1924 Olympics in Paris. He was to run the 100-meter race. When he found out that the race would take place on Sunday, he decided to withdraw in order to honor his conviction that Sunday is the Lord's Day. You can imagine the criticism he endured from his fellow runners, but also from his fellow countrymates back home. Some of the English individuals at the very high up in the society called, said he has a lack of sportsmanship. He's not a patriot. The Scottish citizens criticized him and called him a traitor because he refused to run on Sunday. Well, instead, he enrolled into the 400-meter race and the 200-meter race. He was not the favored runner in either of those races, and especially not in the 200 or four, in, in the 400-meter race. He ended up with a bronze medal for the 200-meter race, and he race and he won the gold medal for the 400-meter race. He became an international success story, an international international hero. He ended up coming to America the year after, 1925, to run some races here. He really became one of those um, success stories that everybody wanted to be like and invite to various events. But it was in 1925 when he decided after running in the States, to go back to China and to become a missionary for the rest of his life. And so he began to serve, teaching Sunday school in various places. He began to work alongside his brother, who's a doctor at the hospital, uh, providing uh, assistance and helping the sick in that community. He lived there through the beginning of the Second World War. And in 1943, The Japanese, as they were in China, as they were present in that country, they incarcerated all of the foreigners. And so he was arrested and put into a horrific prison. The treatment of prisoners, especially the foreigners, was very, very evil. And yet, he continued to be a leader in that community. He continued to run at the demand of the soldiers and the guards. He would also try to encourage people. He organized games for the kids and for the adults. He taught them in school. The older people who would constantly help whatever he could do, the weak, the ill, even though the conditions at the prison consisted of cesspools and rats and flies and diseases ravaged the camp. 
And yet he's remembered to be an optimist, a faithful individual who always had a smile and a cheerful outlook on life. He was remembered by those individuals who knew him as a man of transparent sincerity, a man of deep humility, a man of self-forgetfulness, and one of the finest and most remarkable of men. Unfortunately, he had a brain tumor, and at the age of 43, in 1945, he died, having suffered much in those final months of his life. He never met his youngest daughter before his death. And yet, history, Christian history, remembers him as one of the greatest heroes in Christian times. What was his secret? How was he able to endure the horrific conditions of prison? How was he able to give up a life as an athlete of international renown and give all that up for missions? Some people said that often they would see him reading the Bible crammed in a dormitory with many men and would talk to God in prayer for at least an hour every single day. What drove him? What allowed him to excel and to move forward? Well, he writes and says, he strove every single day for perfection in thought and deed. And one man describes him as such. None of us will ever forget this man who was totally committed to putting God first. A man who humbled himself, a man who had a life of humble, hum, humbleness and combined muscular Christianity with radiant godliness. If you remember last week, that's the phrase I used for this study. Radiant godliness. Second Peter is all about the godly life, about radiating godliness to the people that are watching you. That is the primary theme of this book. And I mentioned last week that Peter divides this book into four sections, the pursuit of a godly life, which is what we're going to talk about this week and next week, the power for the godly life, which is the end of chapter one, the pattern of the ungodly life, which is chapter two, and then the promises for the godly life in chapter three. And we're going to make our way through this book, looking at each section. And so as we begin this evening, I'd like for us to read the first 11 verses of chapter one, as we begin to study the pursuit of the godly life, this is what it'll take for all of us as those who confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior to radiate godliness. Simeon Peter, a slave and apostle of Jesus Christ to those who have received the same kind of faith as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the full knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the full knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. By these, he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now, for this very reason also, applying all diligence In your faith, supply moral excellence. And in your moral excellence, knowledge. And in your knowledge, self-control. And in your self-control, perseverance. 
And in your perseverance, godliness. And in your godliness, brotherly kindness. And in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these things are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the full knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For in whom these things are not present, that one is blind, being nearsighted, having forgotten the purification from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and choosing sure. For in doing these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. I hope that as you heard this read, or perhaps you read this since last Friday, you are filled with hope. Because what Peter will call his readers and us too will demand diligence and perseverance and discipline. But Peter starts out by saying, I want to give you a promise from the very beginning that if you commit to doing what I'm encouraging you to do in this paragraph, you will accomplish the goal. You will attain godliness. And so as we begin to talk about the pursuit of the godly life, the first promise or the first thing that Peter says is, is the promise of godliness. This is what the pursuit of godliness rests on. First of all, there's a promise that he makes in verse 3, and he says, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything, everything, all things that you need, you have. And in the original language, he puts that promise at the very beginning, seeing that everything to you has been granted. In other words, he's promising you totality, and completeness. You and I lack no resource to attain godliness. The promise that he puts forward in verse 3 is intended to give us hope because we will be discouraged. We will fail. And no one knew failure better than Peter himself. If you think back to Peter's story, At the Last Supper in the upper room, Jesus is predicting that all of his disciples will abandon him. Peter, that moment, has courage and arrogance. And so he says, even if all of them, the people that are sitting right next to him, listening to him say what he's saying, even if all of them, you can kind of see him point at all of them and say, even if all of them abandon you, I will never abandon you. I will die for you. Jesus says, okay, Peter, let me make it super specific. Before the rooster crows three times, you will deny me three times. These guys will walk away once. You're going to deny me three times. And Peter at that point begins to say, no, that's not going to happen. Even though all will fall away, he just keeps repeating himself to Jesus. And then you turn the chapter, you get to chapter 18. And in chapter 18, Jesus has been arrested. And he's standing in front of the tribunal. He's been interrogated. He's been questioned by the high priest and the entire Sanhedrin. And it says that they're asking him, 
about his disciples, which is fascinating because all of them are gone. They've all abandoned Jesus by this time, including Peter. Now, you know the story. Jesus is inside the court. John is close to him. Peter is outside. And it says that he's warming himself by the fire. It's cold. In Israel, it gets cold here as well. Not today, because it was, what, 90 today? Good grief. But it does get cold once in a while. And so he's warming himself next to the soldiers, next to the servants of the high priest. And they begin to recognize him as somebody who followed Jesus. Remember, Jesus was famous. People would know him and his followers. And so they say, weren't you with Jesus? Aren't you one of his disciples? And he says, no. Then the second person asks, he says, no. And then the third person says, look, I just saw you in the garden. It wasn't that long ago. My memory isn't that bad. I literally just saw you in the garden. In fact, you chopped off the ear of my cousin. And Peter says, no, that wasn't me. I promise you, not, not, not it, not me. But at that time, he begins to swear and curse, not cuss words. The idea in the Hebrew is he begins to call God's judgment upon himself, curses. If I'm lying to you, may I go to hell. That's what he's telling the people repeatedly. May God damn me, condemn me to hell if I am telling you lies. Remember, it was simply hours ago that he swore to Jesus that he would die for him. And now he simply is unwilling to admit that he even is following Jesus. Peter knew what it's like to fail. To want to be godly, to want to be faithful to Jesus, to follow him no matter what the cost may be. And yet he fails within a few hours of making those grand promises. So when he writes to us, you have been given everything that pertains to life and godliness. He knows that you will also fail. And so he says, don't give up. You don't blame the fact that, okay, maybe I'm missing one little thing. Therefore, I'm ungodly. I sinned because God didn't give me something. But if he would have given me something, I would have not done that sin. Now, Peter is saying, you have everything you need to live the godly life. And he makes this promise for us to encourage us. And so he says, you've been given all things pertaining to life and godliness. He's not talking about a life of wealth or a life of wisdom or a life of success. The idea here is eternal life. You have been given Everything that you need to live the eternal life. You still need wisdom to make the right decisions. There are other parts of scripture that help us with that. And certainly we, are, we should seek wisdom from other people in this world for life. But in the context of eternal life, Peter says you have everything you need. It was back in 1 Peter chapter 1 in verse 3 that Peter talked about life. And this is what he says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope, to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and unfading, which haven't been kept in heaven for you. He's describing this new life. You have been born again. That's the idea of life. You have, we were spiritually dead. Now we're spiritually alive. In John 5, 21, Jesus, the son gives life, eternal life to whomever he wishes. In John 10, 28, Jesus says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. That's the idea of this statement, life. It's eternal life that we are being promised to have and then to maintain. 
God ignites the spiritual life within us and then he sustains our spiritual life. But Paul thought the same thing in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8. This is what he says, 2 Corinthians 9, 8. God is able to make every grace abound to you so that in everything, at every time, having every sufficiency, you may have an abundance for every good deed. How many times do you have to say every? Everything, every, everything, every. Five times in this one verse. For what? For every good deed. The the idea is to live a life that's honoring to the Lord. To live a godly life, a holy life. So Peter and Paul are on the same page. And then if you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 4 through 8, Paul also makes this promise as he writes this letter to a group of Christians in the church of Corinth that were extremely problematic. If you read the whole book of Corinthians, you realize how many problems, sin issues existed in this church. And But this is how Paul starts out a letter that's going to become extremely confrontive. Verse 4, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus. That in everything you were enriched in him, in all word and all knowledge, even as the witness about Christ was confirmed in you, so that you are not lacking in any gift, eagerly awaiting the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, beyond reproach, in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul, at the beginning of 1 Corinthians, says you have everything you need to live a life that's honoring to the Lord, and he will confirm you at the end, at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So the promise isn't just for today, it's all the way until we get to glory. We've been given grace. We've been given knowledge. We're not lacking anything. We are going to be blameless at the end. In other words, your pursuit of godliness is worthwhile. You'll get there. So continue to press on, continue to fight and overcome the temptation. That's what Peter and Paul are promising to us. But they're not saying that you can do this on your own. They're saying God has given you something. He's given you grace. We said, we read this in a couple of verses. And so we need some external power in order to be successful in godliness. And that takes us to our second point. The second point on which godliness rests is the power for godliness. The power for godliness. And we see that in verse 3. Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the full knowledge of him who called us by his own glory. The divine power refers to Jesus, not God, because God by inherent uh, nature, value, would be divine. God is divine. That's how he's understood. So he says divine power to make sure that we understand. We're talking about not God the Father. We're talking about Jesus, the Son of God. We talked about this last week that previously in verses 1 and 2, he introduced Jesus as God back at the end of verse 1. So we know that Jesus is God in Peter's mind already in verse 1. And now he says divine power. That is the power of Jesus Christ. Beyond that, we know that knowledge always refers to Jesus Christ in Peter's writings. Knowledge of him. So even through that, he's reaffirming that the divine power and the knowledge of Jesus Christ is what sustains you in your pursuit of godliness. How potent is this divine power? Look at verse 16. 
We did not make known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, no following cleverly devised myths, but being eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. In these verses, Peter is reflecting on the transfiguration of Jesus Christ. The moment when Jesus showed his true nature to his disciples, Peter, James, and John. Peter was there. He says, I was on that mountain. I heard the father affirm Jesus as his beloved son, but that was done by the power, verse 16. So in other words, the potency of the power that has been given to us is a kind of power that demonstrates who Jesus really is. The transfiguration kind of power. But if you look at Ephesians chapter 1, This power is working within us. And in verse 17, this is what this power is doing in the believer. Ephesians 1, 17. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the full knowledge of him. So that you, the eyes of your heart, having been enlightened will know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his, of the might of his strength, which he worked in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far beyond all authority, all rule and power and dominion. So that's the kind of power that we're talking about, a power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, elevated him through his ascension to the right hand of God the Father above all other powers. And if you look at Ephesians chapter 3, verse 16, this is what Paul says, that he would, so he's praying that he would give you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through the spirit in the inner man. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being firmly rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do and check it out. This is the kind of power we're talking about to do far more. So more abundantly beyond all that we ask or understand according to the power that works within us to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. So it's a power that resurrects. It's a power that allows Jesus to be transfigured. It's a power that can accomplish such great things that we can't even imagine them. It's beyond our imagination that God can do. And that's the power that he extends To us. How is that power activated? How is that power conferred upon us? How do we experience this power? Back to 2 Peter 1. So he's given you this divine power, everything pertaining to life and godliness. How? Through the full knowledge of him who called us. Now we just read multiple passages and they all talk about power and knowledge, power and knowledge, power and knowledge. So Peter is picking up on the same early Christian themes that that are present in the rest of the New Testament that combine knowledge and power. We are talking about the knowledge of him. And as I just said a minute ago, the knowledge of him, knowledge is always in reference to knowing Jesus in the first and second Peter. You can look it up in 1.8. 
2.20 and 3.18. It's always referring to Jesus. You see, Jesus is the agent who grants us to have access to this divine power that propels us forward in our pursuit of godliness. And to use Paul as an illustration, when Paul reflected on his life in Philippians chapter 3, he talks about this pursuit of godliness and what he wanted to accomplish and how he thought he would accomplish it. And so in Philippians 3 in verse 10, this is what he writes. Philippians 3.10. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to, attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already attained it or have already become perfect or mature, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brothers, I do not consider myself as having laid hold of it yet. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So he helps us understand that this pursuit of knowledge, verse 10, so I may know him and the power of his resurrection the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. I'm doing all that in order to demonstrate that I'm still pressing forward toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So Paul, in his self-reflection, this is one of those autobiographical passages in Pauline letters, that he says, this is how I understand my life. I am pursuing Christ-likeness. This one thing I do, I press forward, he says. But I'm doing this by the power and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul understood to give them the necessary ingredients to overcome his personal sin. Paul says of himself in Galatians 1, I'm the chief of sinners. So Paul understood his position apart from the power that sustains him and propels him forward. So Peter and Paul both intertwine knowledge, godliness with power that enables us to advance. And what is it drawing us to? Back in 2 Peter 1.3. Through the full knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. By his own glory and excellence. He's not attributing any kind of external infusion of glory and excellence into Jesus. That makes him attractive to us. His own Glory and excellence. Peter is saying Jesus inherently in his nature is glorious. He is excellent. He is majestic. One commentator said it's Christ's splendor and majesty of him as a divine being that's being described here. He is worthy of praise. He is all virtuous. He is consummate in excellence. That's why in 1 Peter 2.9, Peter said earlier, we proclaim his excellencies. Because those of us who are believers, we recognize his excellencies, his beauty, his virtue. And then we proclaim it. So we are drawn to him. We want to know him more because of his own glory and excellence. This is the glorious Christ. That Peter is encouraging us to know. The same commentator said this. Those whom God saves are called by Christ. 
And this calling is accomplished through the knowledge of Christ's glory and goodness. In other words, when Christ calls people to himself, they perceive the beauty and loveliness of his moral character. His character becomes exceedingly attractive to them and they trust God for their salvation. From the very beginning of our journey towards salvation in the, before we were even saved, before we were unbelievers, what drew us in is the beauty, the loveliness of the moral character of Jesus Christ. Now that we see it, now that we understand how beautiful Christ is, Peter says that same glory and excellence and beauty and loveliness is to continue draw us toward him every single day. You see, that's the simple way to understand the gospel is that we recognize that we are sinners and that we're not lovely. And in order for us to experience any loveliness, any excellence, any goodness, we have to receive that from Jesus Christ. Christ has to give us his goodness, his loveliness, his beauty, and it's infused to us on our account. That's what we call substitutionary atonement. Those who believe in Jesus Christ and confess their sins before him and repent of their sins. In other words, they turn away and they stop following their sins and their lusts and they follow Christ now. There's a substitution that happens. He takes our sin upon himself and he gives us his righteousness, his moral character, his beauty, his loveliness. That's the change that happens, and we call that the gospel, the good news. Because if you were on the other side, when you were on the other side, the consequences of pursuing your own sin and lust was death and judgment, physical and ultimately spiritual death. But those who have received the righteousness and the moral character and the beauty of Christ now receive heaven. And they receive a permanent presence in God's domain. That's why Jonathan Edwards, when he thought about these things and wrote about these things, he said, it's the beauty of Jesus that helps us overcome sin. He wrote a whole book called Religious Affections, which I think every Christian must read based on one verse. The verse is 1 Peter 1.8. 1 Peter 1.8. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. And then here's the consequence of that kind of love and affection and belief. Receiving as the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. That's why we are drawn to Christ. Because the ultimate conclusion to that journey is the salvation of our souls. We spent all day today with the pastors of Grace Church with our pastor, Pastor John. And then uh, part of the segment had to do with John Piper's new book. It's forthcoming in April of this year. It's called, What is Saving Faith? And Piper defines saving faith as affection for Jesus Christ. He says, when you begin to look at the New Testament, saving faith isn't simply intellectual understanding. It's not simple knowledge that produces faith. Ultimately, true faith results in love. It results in affection. Think about the greatest commandment. What is the greatest commandment according to Jesus? Love, right? That's the first word. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So even there, when Jesus has to funnel 613 commandments into one primary one, he says, love the Lord your God. 
And we just read 1 Peter 1.8. So then John Piper says this, being changed into the likeness of Jesus happens by seeing the beauty and worth and excellence of God and his son in their words and ways. Second Corinthians 3.18, Paul says, but we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the spirit beholding is becoming. This is the only Christian way to change behavior so that it honors God. We change because we have seen a superior beauty and worth and excellence. If you look into the face of Christ and then look into sports illustrated or glamour, and are not moved by the superior beauty and worth and excellence and the desirability of Christ, then you are still hard and blind and futile in your thinking. You need to cry out, open my eyes to see wonderful things out of your word. And your life will show it. Where your treasure is, your desire, your delight, your beauty, there will your heart be also. In your evenings, in your Saturdays, and your money, We are changed by seeing the glory of God in the word of God. If God is not more glorious to you and more compelling to you than the luster and glory of the world, you haven't seen him. Third John 1.11 says, the one who does evil has not seen God. So all this is important because all true life change that honors God and has a spiritual worth to it comes from seeing the glory of God not for making religious lists of behaviors and trying to copy them. Do you see the source of our transformation? It's the knowledge that Jesus Christ is beautiful. And so we are drawn to him. And you've heard this quote before about St. Augustine, who said, how sweet all at once it was for me to rid of those fruitless joys, which I had once feared to lose and was now glad to reject. You drove them from me. You who are the true, the sovereign joy. You drove them from me and took their place. You who are sweeter than all pleasure, though not to flesh and blood. You who are brighter than all light, yet are hidden deeper than any secret in our hearts. You who surpass all honor in themselves. At last, my mind was free from the gnawing anxieties of ambition and gain. From wallowing in filth and scratching the itching sore of lust. I began to talk to you freely. Oh Lord, my God, my light, my riches, and my salvation. Peter wants us to experience exactly the same understanding, this transformation. We are drawn to him because he is our light, our riches, which ultimately results in our salvation. And so Peter, back in 2 Peter, says we are drawn to his own glory and excellence. He's called us toward this. In 1 Peter 1.15, Peter says, Like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in your conduct. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, he says, You are a chosen family, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellences of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Verse 21 of the same chapter, For to you, For to this you have been called since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you would follow in his steps. Chapter three, verse nine, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but giving a blessing instead for you were called for this very purpose that you may inherit a blessing. And then chapter five, verse 10, 
And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, strengthen, confirm, and ground you. Those are the promises that are attached to our calling in Jesus Christ towards his glory, towards his excellence. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul says this beginning in verse 3. And even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In whose case the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your slaves for the sake of Jesus. For God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. So now Paul explains why people don't see the beauty of Christ, why they're not drawn to the beautiful glory and the excellences of Christ. It's because Satan has blinded their eyes and they can't see the glory of Christ. So what happens in regeneration when new life is given to us is all of a sudden that veil is gone. And so now you see the beauty of Christ and then you see sin. And because you always choose that which is most valuable, most beautiful, most precious, you choose Christ. And so that is, that's the spark that gives us new life. And then you believe and you repent. And you choose Christ and you see the loveliness of Christ and you begin to follow him and you see the glory of God in the face of Christ. That's the process that we undergo. That's why we always say, read your Bible, study your Bible, memorize your Bible, meditate in your Bible. Because John 5 39 says, you search the scriptures and in them you think you have eternal life. But it is these that speak of me. So now Jesus synthesizes the message of scripture to a message about himself. And so if you're trying to find the beauty of Christ, there's only one place to look. It's not in a mystical supernatural experience that gives you an emotional high through a song or a dream or a vision or something you think you experience. Peter will go after all that beginning in verse 16. We'll get there comparing the, the, the reliability of scripture with the reliability of your experiences. No, the beauty of Christ is found in scripture. But get this, there's nothing magical about this book. Just by reading it, nothing happens. You actually have to understand it and study it and embrace it because this is the only and complete biography of Jesus Christ who grants us power for godliness. You see, our attraction to Jesus and our progress toward godliness doesn't begin with an internal desire nor our own effort. It is his gift back in verse three. He has granted. He gave it to us. 
Tom Schreiner, a commentator on this passage says, Peter did not fall prey to moralism or synergism. The call to godliness is rooted in a, and is secured by God's grace. His gracious power supplies what he demands. Which is why Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, my grace is sufficient for you for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast in my weakness so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. So now it's God's grace that gives us the power, that sustains that power. And then our response is, okay, fine. Even if it means that I'm suffering and I'm in trials, I'm going to enjoy the power of God by the grace of God so that the power of Christ is magnified. So don't lean on your success over sin. Don't lean on your strength. Don't lean on your resolve. What Peter is saying, you have to lean on the power that you gain from the knowledge of Jesus Christ. He gave it to you freely. The grammar of this statement is it's passive, meaning it's given to you. You didn't earn it. You didn't take it. It's God just gave it to you as a gift. And it was given to you in the past at the moment of conversion, but it continues to be working in you this power. In verse 4, he says, for by these he has granted to us. It's the same word. So now a second reaffirmation that God gave you the power, and now God has given you something else. His precious and magnificent promises. It's a superlative that he uses here, Peter does. Magnificent, extraordinary, very great. By his glory and excellence, the end of verse 3, by these, that's what these are, glory and excellence, through them we experience his precious and magnificent promises. And it's fascinating to watch the alternation between him and us, him and us. In verse 1, he says, to those who received faith. Then he says in verse 1, by the righteousness of Jesus. We received faith by the righteousness of Jesus. Verse 2, grace and peace to you, verse 2, in the knowledge of Jesus. Verse 3, his power granted to us, verse 3, through the knowledge of him. Verse 4, he granted to us his precious promises. The source is Jesus Christ. Back and forth, back and forth. As if he has a spotlight and he's shining it at you, then at Jesus, then at you, then at Jesus, then at you, then at Jesus. In the first four verses, every single verse, you can get dizzy by just reading that passage. Because he says, you have this, you have these benefits, but guess where they're coming from? Not from within, they're coming from without. Him, Jesus Christ, Savior, God, and so on. And Jesus is the agent who makes this possible. For by these, verse 4, he granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. He's the agent that allows us to experience the promises. What promises? Primarily, eternity. If you look at verse 9, it says, In whom these things are not present, that one is blind, being nearsighted, having forgotten the purification from his former sins. Wrong verse. Chapter 3, verse 9. Verse 3, uh, chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slow about his promise. Okay, there it is. As some consider slowness, but is patient toward you, not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. The promise that he was just talking about, beginning in verse, verse 1 and beyond, is the promise that he's coming back. They say, where's the promise of his coming? Verse 4. And it says, he's not slow about his promise. So it's a futuristic promise. And then look at verse 13 of the same chapter. According to his promise, we're looking for new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So the promise has the, the, the meaning of a future existence with God in righteousness in a new heaven and earth. That's the consummation of eternal life. And God will never, 
break this promise. Jesus will never break this promise. This is what it says about the promises that Jesus makes in 2 Corinthians 1.19. For the Son of God, Christ Jesus, who was preached, was not yes and no. In other words, there's no ambivalence in him, but is yes in him. For as many as are the promises of God in him, they are yes. So once God makes a promise, he aims to keep it. He will never break that promise. So the promise that we're talking about is that he will make you godly at the coming of Jesus Christ. It's a futuristic fulfillment and he will keep that promise. That's the hope that Peter is trying to give us, which is why he calls these promises precious. Peter loves this word. In 1 Peter 1.7, he says, the outcome of your faith is more precious than gold. In 1 Peter 1.19, he says, you've been bought with a precious blood. In 1 Peter 2.4, he says, Jesus is the precious stone in God's sight. In 1 Peter 2.7, he says, to those who believe, Jesus is precious. That's the question for you. Is he precious to you? Is Jesus actually valuable? Is he precious? And we talked already about how you'd understand if he is. How your life demonstrates that. You see, it's not about legalism. It's not about ritualism. It's about affection. Because after Peter failed miserably, publicly, you can only imagine that moment when Jesus looked him in the eye. It says that in the Gospels. And Peter left weeping. You can only imagine the flood of emotions when their eyes connected. As Jesus is being led away to crucifixion and Peter runs the other way. After that, Jesus says to, John, uh, to Peter in John 21, is your life in order, buddy? Have you kept the promises you made to me? He says, do you love me? Three times. Ultimately, it comes down to that simple expectation. Do you love Christ? Is he beautiful to you? You see, when we fail Christ, the first thing that we do is not try harder. Gouge out your eye, chop off your hand. No, the first thing we do is ask ourselves, do I really love Christ? Is he really precious to me? Do I really find value in him. And what is drawing my affection away from Christ? Sometimes it's as simple as a busy schedule. And you're running around so much with good things that you have no time to invest into your love for Christ. Sometimes it's simply laziness. It doesn't have to be some crazy addiction. It could be those simple things that hinder our advancement in our affection for Christ. Obedience flows from affection. When those are reversed, it's legalism. And so we have to understand that. And we recognize that, that we will fail because we're on a journey. There's a process. And that's our third and final principle on which godliness rests. The process of godliness. Embrace it. Verse four, he says this. By them, in the middle of the verse, you may become. That's a process. You become. Over time, slowly, you are moving towards Christ-likeness. And what? You may become partakers of the divine nature. 
Now that sounds like you are morphing, evolving into a God. The Mormons believe that. The Roman emperors believed that when this book was written. In fact, 25 years before this book was written, there was an emperor by the name of Caligula. Gaius Caligula, when he was dying, his final words were, oh no, I think I'm turning into a god. Then he died. That was their understanding. And many emperors believed that. There was this Greek, Greco-Roman philosophy that taught that you evolve into a god. But that's not what Peter is talking about. How do we know this? Because of the next phrase, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. The next phrase helps you understand what kind of partakers of nature he's talking about. It's not corruption, it's not lust, is moral character. That helps us understand this. So listen, as frustrated as you may be, as much as you want to stop sinning, as much as we wish our moral transformation was immediate and overnight and the second that we became believers, We are undergoing a process that doesn't excuse sin, that only gives us hope that we're moving in the right direction. And he's going to say in verses 5 through 11, how you know if you're moving in the right direction? We'll get there next week. But also John in 1 John chapter 3 makes a statement that tells us when the process will end. 1 John 3, 2, beloved, now we are children of God. In other words, it's a fact that you are saved, you belong to God, and it has not been manifested as yet what we will be. In other words, we're moving in a certain direction, but today we're not there. We know that when he is manifested, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. That's the promise that we will be fully transformed into his likeness when we see him face to face. How do we know we're talking about righteousness, godliness, and not ontological transformation into a deity because of verse 29. If you know that he's righteous, you know that everyone also who does righteousness has been born of him. And then you look at verse three and everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself as he is pure. So verse 29 and then verse three Clarify what this pursuit, what this transformation is. It's the righteousness that we will experience. Until then, we are disentangling ourselves from this world, which is why John says earlier in chapter two, do not love the world nor the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away and also it's lust, but the one who does the will of God abides forever. So John now repeats what Peter said. You need to disentangle yourself from this world, from the lusts of the world that are passing away. The corruption back in second Peter one, the corruption that is in the world by lust, the same terminology, the same idea that we are moving away from that. And as we, are moving away from that, we need to understand that these lusts are holding us captive. Even even Plato understood this. This is what he said. Imprisonment is the fact that it is caused by the lusts of the flesh so that the prisoner is the chief assistant in his own imprisonment. The reason that we're enslaved to lust is because we're the ones holding ourselves captive. But guess what Proverbs 5 says? His own iniquities will capture him, the wicked one. 
And with the cords of his sin, he will be held fast. He will die for lack of discipline. And in abundance of his folly, he will stumble into intoxication. That's a pretty powerful statement. At the end of a chapter, that's all about lusts. Our own cords of sin hold us captive. That's why Peter says we are moving away from the corruption that is in the world by lust. Titus 2.11 says the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men. Instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. And to live sensibly, righteously and godly in the present age. Why? Because in chapter 3 we were once foolish Disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God and Savior, our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us. We've been saved from lust, but here's the deal. Lust is the starting point of all sin. James 1.14, each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. So if we're trying to figure out how to overcome sin, the anatomy of sin, just recognize the first step is giving into your lust, giving into your desire, and that is bound to produce sin. And Galatians 5.16 makes a promise. As long as you do this, you will never fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Walk in the spirit and you will never Fulfill the lusts of the flesh. So put James 1.14 and 15 with Galatians 5.16 and we have a solution. All it is, is submitting to the spirit. Not following our own lusts. This is what Peter's calling us to. We are being transformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ. His divine moral nature. Because we've been, we've escaped the corruption that is in the world by its lust. How far do we go? How hard do we fight? How far do we push to avoid giving into our lusts? Romans 13, 14. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no opportunity for the flesh in regard to its lust. Paul makes no exception whatsoever. There's no excuse. There is no opportunity that we're to give to fulfilling the desires of the flesh. Not a glance, not a thought, not a single conversation, not a single moment of time is to be allotted to allowing our desires to be fulfilled because the end is certain sin. Instead, he says, here's the solution. Romans 13, two verses before that. Just as you get dressed every single day, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. What does that mean? Lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, nor in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, nor in strife and jealousy. The imagery is of taking off old clothes, dirty, torn, out of style, filthy clothes, and putting on a new wardrobe in style. Comes back every 40 years or so, but not in the spiritual sense. You've got new clothes. You have a new wardrobe. It's clean. It's perfectly fitted for you. Put that on is what Paul is saying. And that is putting on Jesus Christ because we have been changed. 
And so in 2 Corinthians 4.16, and we're almost there in case you're wondering how much longer is he going to talk? 2 Corinthians 4.16, therefore, we don't lose heart. It's a statement of hope again. We don't lose heart, though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For our momentary light affliction is working out for us an eternal weight of glory, far beyond all comparison. While we look not on the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. We're striving towards this glory. We're not losing heart because we understand, yes, I'm getting older. Yes, I'm getting more frail. Yes, it's getting harder to wake up and other stuff. But in the inner man, I'm being renewed. Why? Because of Colossians 1.27. Because you have Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. And until then, 2 Corinthians 3.18 is our daily existence we all with an unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just as from the lord the spirit glory all over the place change transformation knowledge of jesus christ and this is happening Every single time we behold the glory of the Lord. That's all it takes. The beauty of Christ transforms us. Which is why Spurgeon explained the secret of a godly and holy life in this way. Vanish forever all thought of indulging the flesh if you would live in the power of your risen Lord. It were ill that a man who is alive in Christ should dwell in the corruption of sin. Why seek ye the living among the dead? Said the angel to Magdalene. Should the living dwell in the sepulcher? Should divine life be immured in the charnel house of fleshly lust? How can we partake of the cup of the Lord and yet drink the cup of Belial? Surely, believer, from open lusts and sins you are delivered. Have you also escaped from the more secret and delusive lime twigs of the satanic fowler? Have you come forth from the lust of pride? Have you escaped from slothfulness? Have you clean escaped from carnal security? Are you seeking day by day to live above worldliness, the pride of life and the ensnaring vice of avarice? Remember, it is for this that you have been enriched with the treasures of God. If you be indeed the chosen of God and beloved by him, do not suffer all the lavish treasure of grace to be wasted upon you. Follow after holiness. It is the Christian's crown and glory. An unholy church, it is useless to the world and of no esteem among men. It is an abomination, hell's laughter, heaven's abhorrence. The worst evils which have ever come upon the world have been brought upon her by an unholy church. O Christian, the vows of God are upon you. You are God's priest. Act as such. You are God's king. Reign over your lusts. You are God's chosen. Do not associate with Belial. 
Heaven is your portion. Live like a heavenly spirit. So shall you prove that you have true faith in Jesus. For there cannot be faith in the heart unless there be holiness in the life. That's the pursuit of godliness. Lord God, the standard is way too high for us to accomplish on our own. And so we need the spirit. Walk by the spirit. And only then will we not carry out the lusts of the flesh. Those of us who belong to you, who are chosen, who are beloved, who are saved. Those who have Christ, the hope of glory within us. We want to live lives that are godly. We want to mimic Christ. We want to reflect Christ. We want to radiate godliness. So I pray that the Holy Spirit would take those desires and make them real. That life, that our lives would be lives of godliness and holiness and purity. And that we would be attracted to the beauty and the loveliness of Christ. Because every single time we are drawn to him and look at him in scripture, we ourselves are being transformed into that same glorious state. Let that give us hope every single day that we're tempted to look away from Christ. Pray this to the honor of your name. Amen.